All right, tonight we're going to be, uh, I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and through 23. We already dealt with uh, verse 23 last time we were together, but we skipped over verses 21 and 22. And then once we spend some time dealing with that, we're going to get to the, begin to dive into the last verses in chapter 1. So for right now, let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, And you who were once alienated... And hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we've already broken verse 23 down last week, especially, and also, if you remember a few weeks ago, many weeks ago, we dealt with how the the Bible teaches that the gospel has already been preached in all creation. Yet at the same time, we looked at how Paul also said, I don't make it my goal to preach where someone else has already preached. I want to preach where people haven't laid the foundation. And we wrestled with that section already. So we're not going to get into verse 23 tonight. But for, we're going to look at verses 21 and 22. And then with the time we have left, we'll begin to look at verses 24 and following. But before salvation, according to verse 21, before salvation through faith in, through faith in Christ's blood, we all were alienated from God. Now, I'm going to take some time tonight to not sugarcoat this. God loves the whole world. We dealt with that last week. And Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But apart from being reconciled to God by Jesus and through faith, we were not, as some people say, good people. There's a tendency when people talk about a lost person, someone that doesn't know Christ, they'll say things, but they're really, they're a, they're a good soul. I'm going to show you what the scripture actually says about those who are outside of Christ. Remember, this is not uh, bash them time because we were all that way before Christ saved us. But the Bible says that to say, oh, that's really a good person. That's not biblically true. Sometimes people will say when they're talking about their children who haven't come to faith in the Lord and they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Oh, he's a little misdirected right now. He's wandering. Well, I'm going to show you what the Bible actually says about their condition. If we've broken any one of the laws, we've broken them all. That's right. James 2.10, if you broke even one, you're guilty as if you broke them all. So look at this verse again. Look at verse 21. How does the Bible describe those who are outside of Christ, alienated from God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds? Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to show you ahead of time what this passage is saying, and then we're going to, we're going to take a look at them, read it, say it. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, the Bible describes us as powerless or weak and enemies of God before, before salvation. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, some of your translations say powerless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, therefore, we have now been since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were what enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So again, listen to the biblical descriptions of those who are outside of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Remember, it's available to all. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. It's being offered by the spirit of God to all. 
But if they have not received it, scripturally, we've already seen you're alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, powerless enemies of God. Let me give you another one that I'm going to show you what the Bible says. The Bible describes those people as, as children of the devil. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44. They answered, and they're talking to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear my, bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So again, Jesus said those who are outside of Christ, their father is who? The devil. Um, the Bible also, as you're going to see in Ephesians, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that apart from Christ forgiving us our sins and us receiving this forgiveness, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And as you're going to see, also the Bible describes us as children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Paul says, And you were dead in tr the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of, our, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." Folks, I, I'm going to show you one more, but I just want you to hear what I'm saying. We have a tendency sometimes to kind of sugarcoat the condition of those who are outside of Christ. And the Bible doesn't do that. Paul doesn't do that. And as he was talking to those who have received this forgiveness, he said, you were once alienated. And if we were once alienated, that means that those who are still apart from Christ are what? Alienated. alienated. But please don't misunderstand the heart of God. He doesn't hate the world. For God so, what's the word Bible say? Love the world that he gave his only son. He knew the world's condition before they were even made. He knew what their need was going to be. He knew they were going to turn from him. And they were going to reject him. But at the same time, he planned ahead of time to reconcile them to himself by the death of his own son. Yes, sir. It's, it's all in the definition of what we consider good or evil. In our own humanness, we consider good to be uh, breaking the law doing harm to somebody else. That's our own <coughs> measure of good. When God's measure of good is <coughs> perfection. Right. You're right. And we want that good to match us. Yes. Don't we have a tendency to all do that? When we go to a court of law, we try, even though we know we've broken the law, we try to say, but it really wasn't that bad. Right. Christ himself said, you know, there's no one good but God. That's right. That's right. Well, go to that passage we just started quoting. Go to John chapter 3. 
And look at verses 18 through 21. We're not going to read verse 16 and 17. We're going to go to John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Look closely what the scripture says here. Remember, this is still Jesus talking. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And the same Jesus that had said John 3, 16 and 17 also said verse 18 and following. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is what? condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Don't miss that for a second. What Jesus is saying, first of all, is whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned already. By the way, you talk to most people today out there on the street who don't know Christ. And if you were to ask them if they were to die today, would they go to heaven? Typically, their answer would be, yeah, I think so. Why? Because they think they're a pretty good person. God's going to weigh their good and their bad. What does the Bible say? What they're saying is, is one day I'm going to stand before God and he's going to judge me at that time. And I think I'll come out okay. Right. The scripture says the judgment's already been made. Here's the verdict. Some of your translations say, here's the verdict. The verdict's already been made. You haven't received and believed in Jesus. You're condemned already. You already know ahead of time what the what the, the you ever heard of some people say, oh, I hope you don't get that judge, because if you get that judge, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Some judges are known for how they're going to go. Well, guess what? I can tell you right now, when you stand before the creator of the universe, he's already said which way he's going to which way he's going to judge. But at the same time, look closely at what it says here, though, in the verses following. Look at verse 19 and following. The light has come. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light, but lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that they are impressive. No, that his works have been carried out in God. Interestingly enough, folks, don't think for a second that if you are one of those ones who have believed in Jesus, that you're better than those who don't believe in Jesus because you know something they don't know or that you're smarter than they are. If you believe in Jesus, who did it? He did it. He drew you. He is the one who opened your eyes. He's, as you're about to see tonight, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Please don't let people take you down this road that God has already predetermined who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. The Bible teaches that this is God's sovereign act in saving us. But the Bible also teaches just as much that every one of us has a responsibility to respond to it by, by a free will choice. We have to let the scripture both say there are too many people in Christianity running to one side of the aisle or the other and fighting with each other over this salvation thing. But let's be honest, this is God's work and we don't understand it. But we do. I, I'm just going to tell you this. If any doctrine you hear, or any teaching on how God saves doesn't let man have the ability to say yes or no, it's not it's not a biblical doctrine. But any doctrine as well that's on the other side of the aisle that doesn't show that it is done by God. It's an unbiblical doctrine as well. And if anybody thinks they can figure out how the two come together, run away. Run, run, run. Because we don't. This is something that God is doing, but man has a choice. But at the same time, if you do respond, it's not because you're a great person. 
It's because God did it. That's what the scripture says. Because God did it. All right? Now, but now, through Christ, go back to Colossians chapter 1. But now, through Christ, we have been reconciled to God, but God had a purpose in reconciling us. Actually, you're going to see a little bit of that tonight, not, not all of it, but uh, he, he's got more than one purpose in reconciling us. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let me ask you a question. For those of you that gave birth to children or adopted children, you had a reason why you did that, hopefully, right? You had a purpose in giving birth to them, correct? And, and adopting them. You, you had dreams and plans and you have a purpose for why you gave them birth or brought them into your family, correct? Now, God has the same kind of an attitude. He has a reason and a purpose for why. And some people think, well, it's just to use me to get more people into the family. Honestly, you've got a small view of God if you think that he only saved you to use you to get other people saved. It's way bigger than that. It's way, way bigger than that. And look closely at this passage. According to this passage here, what was one of his purposes in saving us and reconciling us to him? To bring us holy and blameless and above reproach. Where? To himself. He's actually saved us as a gift to himself. We are the bride. Where do you see? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to show you a bunch of passages that talk about this. And a lot of them we might have skimmed over or maybe never even seen. In Ephesians chapter 1, listen closely to verses 3 through 14. Paul says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We could just spend an hour on that right there. By the way, do you think that there's a lot of spiritual cool stuff in heaven? Yeah. The Bible says that because of us being in Christ, everything that is available through Christ is ours. Every spiritual blessing he's already given to us in Christ. That's Makes my head hurt, and it's pretty cool. Listen, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I'm going to stop. I'm going to keep reading here, but i got to stop, because this word predestined came out. And every time some of you hear that word, you hear people that are teaching the wrong definition of predestined in the scriptures. Let me clarify something for you. And if you can even show this to those people who misuse the word predestined. Every time you see the word predestined in the scripture, it never ever says that God predestined who would be saved. Never. It always says or describes an aspect of salvation that has predest been predestined. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and you're going to see this later on tonight, it says, And those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. What was predestined? That those that he knew were going to be saved would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what's predestined. Here in this passage, if you look closely, what has been predestined is not who would be saved, but actually that those who would be saved would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the thing that has been predestined. He planned ahead of time that all that would come to him would come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Remember the story of Gideon when he was scared and hiding because the Midianites had come and was attacking Israel and God comes and finds Gideon and says, hey, mighty warrior. And I love it. I can picture Gideon sitting there hiding going, he must, there must be somebody else. I thought I was alone. <laughs> you know, and God says, no, you're the one I chose to go defeat the Midianites. And he takes him through this little journey to get him ready. But when he gets, gathers the 32,000 and then he says, you let the ones that are afraid go home and 22,000 do. And he's still got 10,000. God says to Gideon, I want you to go take them all down to the river to get something to drink. The ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. Now, every guy that went down there to take a drink was free to choose however they drank, whether they drank it face in the water or scooped the water up and brought it to them, their mouth. They were free to choose how they were to drink it. But it was already predestined that the ones who were going to be the chosen were the ones who drank in this certain manner. Did you catch what I'm saying? He didn't predestine who would drink that way. He predestined the how. God's word says that he loves the world, died for the sins of the world, but only those who drink in one certain way through faith in Jesus Christ are the ones he predestined that we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. What has been predestined is the how. Okay? But now let's go back here, and you're going to see some words. They're going to jump out, not only out of this passage, but they're also going to jump out of other passages we're going to look at. Look again at, at verse, uh, uh, verse 4. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of His will. You're about to see that the Bible says over and over and over that God is working everything out in accordance with the purpose of His will. So one of the things that we have already begun to look at tonight is one of his purposes and one of the purposes of his will is not only to save us, but to present us what? Holy, blameless and above reproach. What? To himself. God didn't just save you. He's now in the process of conforming you into what he wants you to look like when you are presented before him at that time. Those of you ladies who were engaged to be married at one time, you were pretty pumped, weren't you, when the guy said, will you? Hopefully you, you cried for the right reasons. <laughs> what did you do between the time when you had been in betrothed, if you will, and engaged, until the time when he came to get you in the wedding date? You made yourself ready. Some of you started eating a lot of celery. <laughs> You probably spent more time in front of the mirror than you ever had. You got your hair. Becky even had baby's breath in her hair. I didn't even know what baby's breath was. And I, and I remember her saying, because she was trying to describe to me, because she had it done like a day or so before or the day of, and we get married late at night. And she was describing to me her hair on the phone, because I'm not going to see it until she walks down the aisle. And she talks about how they put baby's breath. And I'm thinking, sometimes baby's breath doesn't smell so good. But the Bible says in the picture of the Jewish wedding ceremony, when the, the, when, when the son would go to the father of the bride, he would purchase her, would he not? He would work a deal with the dad, so many cows, so many goats or whatever, and he would purchase her. And he would say to her, you've been bought. But it wasn't time for the marriage ceremony until he went back to his father's house and made ready the wedding feast. 
And when his father said, you're ready, go get your bride, that's when he would come. The, we nowadays set the date. It's going to be on whatever day, whatever such and such a time. And we tell everybody that's the date. But in the Jewish ceremony, the girl didn't know. The guy didn't know. It was when the father of the groom said, you're ready, things are ready, go get her. And that's when he would come and he would make a big parade, if you will, and he would come get her and he would take her. Now, her purpose between when she had been purchased until when he came to get her, which she did not know, was to what? Make herself ready. Now, I have to be honest, us guys, that's harder for us to really understand because you ladies, you, you've been through that whole process of getting ready. But if you look at it, the Holy Spirit is similar to what happened with Rachel and Jacob. Yes. Because it was a proctor that went mm -hmm. and did all of the machinations to get the bride and the bride. Exactly. And, and the Holy Spirit <laughs> does that. And then throughout the, the time, the, the son would send gifts. Great. And, and you saw that with Isaac and, 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 and the servant for Isaac and Rebecca as well. But listen to what I'm telling you. Guys, you're going to have to maybe listen to the ladies about what it's like to get ready and be ready. Because we, let's be honest. Most of us guys, we wore a tux that somebody else wore the weekend before, right? I mean, this whole idea of getting ourselves ready, you know, but the Bible says that Jesus is in, like you just pointed out, Jesus is in that process. He's not sitting back waiting for us to make ourselves ready. And you're going to see this tonight. The purpose of his will is to present us to himself blameless and holy. By the way, we're already, you're going to see in Scripture, already righteous, already declared holy, yet we're being made holy. And the Holy Spirit is now, because that is God's predestined plan for you, is in the process of bringing you to that point so that when you are brought before him, you look like what he wants you to look like at that moment. Mm -hmm. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. This life here is really not about how nice of a house or a car or boat or anything like that you get. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house and a car and a boat. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's not what this life is about. This life, as you're about to see from the scriptures, is that God is using the circumstances and the situations that we're going through in our health and our finances and our relationships and all the stuff we go through. He's just using them as tools to shape us and to conform us and to mold us and to make us what he wants us to be. So at that time, we would be presented to him. You don't want to show up in a sweatpants, do you? You don't want to be... You know, imagine if that, that bride had thought, well, I got plenty of time. I don't know when he's coming or whatever. And then the groom shows up and she's there in sweatpants and curlers, you know. And, who said sandals? All right. Now let's go back to the word here. All right. Nice point there, Dave. I'll give you a point for that one. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. All right. Uh, we just seen at the end of verse 6, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed as in the beloved. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his, what's that word again? Purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This whole passage here, what's it talking about? What time period? When, when is this all pointing to? When our salvation is completed. You have been saved, been justified through faith. When you trusted Christ and he sealed you with his spirit, you, you were saved. But that was just the beginning of your salvation. We're in the process of being saved. You won't ever lose it, but we're in that process of being conformed. And it makes its fulfillment when Jesus comes and takes us to be with him. Oh, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to receive our rewards and crowns according to what he's been allowed to do in our lives in this time period. And that's all tied to when we're going to be presented to him. Oh, folks, let me just tell you. Well, let's just keep looking at the scriptures. There's a lot that is to come. Real quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> we know this passage, but I want you to see it in the context where we are now. For our sake... He made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we in him might become what? The righteousness of God. His desire is to present us to himself blameless and holy without reproach. Well, let's be honest. Who is, who's equal to such a task, as Paul said? Who's capable of doing that? How many of you, if I said to you tomorrow, on your own strength and your own ability, even though you're saved, live tomorrow without sin? Anybody think they can do it? I'm not signing up for that. But you know what's neat is you're about to see. The Bible says that, first of all, I've already been declared righteous because I'm in Christ. But now there's a process going on where by the power of this Holy Spirit that lives within inside of me. Remember, that same spirit of God lived within Jesus because he was God. How did he do when he lived in the body? Perfect. Oh, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So if God knows how to live inside a body like this and win, that same victory is available to us as we learn to daily let him have control of our lives. We do better. than That's why the Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to daily offer our flesh, our bodies, on the altar, which is our spiritual act of worship. We have to go through this process of yielding to him. Romans 8, 1, you don't have to turn there. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. So, okay, we are righteous, yet look at Ephesians chapter 5. If I'm already righteous... What's this whole purpose of conforming me into his image then? Well, look at Ephesians 5. Look at verses... You're jumping ahead of me, Mark, but you're right. We're going there. We're going there. Good for you. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see those words starting to come up over and over and over? But how does God then not only died for us, but there's another part of the process. What's he doing now that we've already been made righteous? What's he doing now in the time period? He's doing what? He's washing us with with his word. 
Jesus in John 17, verse 17, was praying to the Father right before he went to the cross. And he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Listen, your word is truth. What is God wanting to be using to conform you into his image? What is God wanting to be using to make you blameless and holy and this glorious present to himself? His word. His word. I love it. Renewing your mind with the word. Go to John chapter 17. I love this one. John chapter 17. Look at verse 24. I'm going to read to you the beginning of John 17, and then we're going to look at verse 24. In John 17, the very, very beginning, when Jesus had spoken these words, he's in the garden, he's right before the cross. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, before we get to verse 24, look at what Jesus said. He said, Father, I've done what you've asked me to do here on the earth. I've been obedient to everything that you designed for me to go through and what you had me do. And I've been faithful to do everything you've asked for me. The time for me to leave this world is, is come. I want to go back and receive the glory that I had before I took on this human body. Is what he said. I want to be restored to that glorious state. Can't wait. How many of you can't wait to get out of this body? Imagine what it'd be like for God. All right, but look at verse 24. Then he says something at the end of his prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He not only prayed, Father, I want to receive that glory that I had all the way before the foundation of the world. I want those that you've given me to see my glory. Now, folks, I'm going to go down a road real quick. I'm not going to take the time to turn there if you want to just take some notes and write fast. I believe that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation are without question the church. Yes. Let me show you a lot of reasons why real quick. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and the messages from Jesus to the churches, you will see, as he says to each one, even though it was a letter to Thyatira or to Pergamum or to Sardis, in each one he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, what? Churches, plural. And each of those, end of each of those specific messages to those seven churches, at the end he makes a promise to all the churches. And in one he says, I'm going to give you golden crowns. To another, he says, I'm going to let you sit on my throne. To others, he says, I'm going to have you clothed in white garments. When you get to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you'll see that John is taken up into heaven and he's going to say, the voice that he heard on the earth, which is Jesus, he now sees up in heaven, a door opens, says, come up here, I'm going to show you what's going to take place after this. And from that moment on, after the church age, if you will, he sees everything that's going on in the book of Revelation from a grandstand view. And he sees around the thrones... Around the throne of God, 24 thrones. Now, if you are faithful to study your scriptures, you'll know that way back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and chapter 25, when David was uh, king, there was too many priests to all serve in the temple at the same time. Because remember, if you were born of the tribe of Levi, you were, became a priest. Well, by this point, there's been a lot of priests. They all can't serve in the temple at the same time. So David comes up with a plan to divide all the priests into 24 different 
subdivisions. That's why we know, by the way, if you look at 1 Chronicles 24, one of them is Abijah. And when Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 was of the priestly division of Abijah, it was his turn to serve in the temple for those two weeks. As you know, the lot was chosen that day that he was to make sure the altar had the incense continually burning. And that's when Gabriel comes and says, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John, you and Elizabeth. The 24 were representative of all, but they took turns serving in the temple when their division came. In chapter 25 of 1 Chronicles, you see the same thing when it comes to the worship leaders and the musicians. There's so many of them, they all can't sing a solo. So they break all the worship leaders into 24 divisions, which represent the whole, but they each take turns according to their division. And what does John say? You go look and he says, I saw thrones, 24 thrones around the throne of God. And on them were 24 elders, again, a term we see for the church. And then he says, and they had golden crowns, which what Jesus promised the church, white robes, which Jesus promised the church, and they were sitting on thrones, which Jesus promised the church. I believe that the 24 elders is the church. Now listen closely. I can't prove this next part. This is speculation, but I think I'm right. I wonder if we will not take turns like the priests did, like the worship leaders did, when it's our turn to sit on those thrones around the throne of God. Kind of cool, isn't it? Got all eternity. Got all eternity. <laughs> but the Bible actually says that we're going to sit on thrones with Him. We're going to rule and reign with Him. The Bible says that we're going to be presented to Him. Every spiritual blessing has been given us in Christ. We are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. The more you look at it, folks, we've got to stop thinking that one day we're just going to go to heaven and float on a cloud and play a harp, fart, folks. There's so much more than this. So much more than this. And Jesus says, I want those you've given me to see my glory and to be with me where I am. He, he's wanting to present us to himself. Oh, is he able to do it? Well, Jude answers that question. Look at Jude 24 and 25. Jude 24 and 25. You guys are getting so good now. No one asked me what chapter. <laughs> Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, is he able to do it? Let me just tell you, he's going to do it. Stop fighting it. Wouldn't you say that to someone that doesn't know Christ? Wouldn't you say to him, God loves you. He's drawing you. He's calling you. Stop resisting it. And that's what Stephen said to them right before they stoned him. He says, you stiff-necked individuals, how long will you resist the Holy Spirit? God's drawing you. He's showing you. His word's been preached to you. You got to receive it. I say the same thing to the church. You've been saved. You've been declared righteous. Yet you are in the process of God making you into what he wants you to be. Why will you not just receive it? Stop resisting it. Believe it. And let him. Let him. Look at Romans chapter 28, verses 28 to 30. I've already quoted a portion of it. One last passage, and then we'll run on to the next thing. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, wait a minute, we always like to look at that, how God's going to make everything work out for us. And even though that guy stole my car, I'm going to get a better one. You know, that kind of a thing. Listen to what it says. We know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God and are called according to what? His purpose. His purpose. This promise is not saying that if something bad happens to you in this life, that it's going to be all right in this life. The whole context never said that. Because if you go back to the beginning of this context in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that our present suffering is not even worth being compared with the glory to be revealed. The context is what's to come. In other words, Paul says, I know something you don't know. You see, because earlier he had said, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not sure. But he was taken up into the third heaven. And he's not allowed to talk about what he saw. So all he's allowed to say is, is I know it's tough down here. But I promise you, what you're going through now isn't even worth being compared with what's to come. That's all I can say. I know stuff you don't know. Then he says in the next verses, creation knows something you don't know. Because creation's waiting for that day of the rapture when the sons of God are revealed and we get our bodies. Creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Why? Because creation was subjected to frustration. Well, remember, the earth was cursed back in the garden. But creation knows that one day it's going to be released from its bondage. But it doesn't happen until after we get our new bodies at the rapture. Because creation knows that after the rapture, they're next. And that's what goes on in Revelation 4 and 5, especially 5, when you see Jesus open the scrolls and the seals. All right? So listen to the context. Paul says, I know stuff about what's to come that you don't know. Creation knows stuff about what's to come that you don't know. And then he says this, And we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we await the adoption of our, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I've asked you before, but I'll ask you again. Have you all homesick for heaven? How could you be homesick for a place you've never been? Because the Spirit of God who has been there and is there lives within you. And he, he knows stuff you don't know. Oh, listen. And that passage that goes on right after that. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We've been taught that this passage was saying that if you're in a situation and you don't know how to pray, you say, Holy Spirit, help me pray. That's not what the passage is saying. The passage is saying, actually, the Holy Spirit that lives within you knows already ahead of time what's to come. He knows why God's allowing you to go through what you're going through because he's in the process of conforming you into his image. He's preparing you for this glorious presentation. And what he's putting you through right now isn't about this life. It's about what's to come. Norma, it's about what's to come. Isn't that awesome? It's about what's to come. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is already praying for us in accordance with God's will and his purposes. Oh, he'll help you in that time that you cry out. But he's already been praying for you in accordance with the purpose of what God's doing for why he's putting you through it. Because he already knows what's to come. And then we know that everything works to the good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't promise that it'll be better here. But it's tied to what's to come. And look at verse 29. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Guys, let me just say it to you this way. Well, God said it to Jesus this way. I'm sorry, Jesus said it to Paul this way. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Does anybody know what that means when Jesus told Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads? Do you know what, do you know what that illustration means? You know, back when they would have an animal that they wanted to move, they would take a sharp instrument and they would get it to go where they wanted it to go, right? What does the, what does the book of James say? Don't, uh, sorry, the book of Psalms say, don't be like the mule that has to have a bit put in its mouth to get it to where it wants you to go. If God has saved you and you are truly his, Remember, we already looked at verse 23 last week, you know, provided you stand firm. Because the only time will tell whether or not we truly are born again. But if you are born again, if His Spirit within you, He will finish what He started. You either believe it and walk in obedience and let Him do what He's doing and count it all joy when you face trials and stop resisting. Or you're going to have to deal with the goads. Because he's going to win. He disciplines the sons he loves. He disciplines the sons he loves. All right. I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time. But you know, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the Bible describes him as the author and the finisher of our faith. But what does it say in there? Surround, seeing that surra we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us lay aside now all the stuff that hinders us. Sin that easily entangles and ensnares us. And that's one with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus make it through what he had to do? He wasn't looking for this life. He was looking for the one to come. How many times have we heard people say, and you might have even said the same words, how could a loving God let, and we look at this life. Ah, that's the problem. We're looking at the wrong world. The scripture says he's actually doing this for the life to come. Because then it makes it about us, yep. not about him. Exactly. Very good. Uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you, what? He will finish it. He will finish it. Oh, you mamas and daddies who've got kids that know the Lord, but they're not walking with him right now? <laughs> Just pray. Stop trying to do God's work. Stop calling up and say, you need to be in church. <laughs> and start praying, Lord, if you began a good work in my kid, you said you'd finish it. I believe you will. Do what you got to do to finish it. Because I'm no longer worried about whether or not my kid suffers in this life. If he has to get to the point where he's eating pig slop to come to his senses, Lord, bring him to the end of himself. Because you're focusing more on this next life than this one. And I've been working against your plan because I'm not wanting him to suffer here. If that's what has to happen for him to be where you want him to be, I release him to you. God says, good, because you already dedicated him to me years ago in that church service. And then Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that we are to obey and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Listen, for it is God who works in us both to will and to act according to what? His good purpose. 
So folks, what is God's purpose for saving you? There's many. But what's the one we're looking at tonight? To present us to himself holy and blameless. There is a time coming when we are going to be presented to him as trophies of his work. As we're about to look at, the scripture actually says that some of us are going to be a little shinier than others. How are we to live with this knowledge? Go to Colossians chapter 3. We're to stop resisting the Spirit's desire and work in our lives by believing that God will conform us into His image and by obeying His word, listen, and His promptings. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Listen closely, especially verse 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I think we've heard that already tonight. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why is it telling me to do it when it's God doing it? Because I still choose whether or not I'm going to daily let him take control. That's why he's telling us that we have to do it. Now, it isn't because I'm the only one that can do it. I can't do it. But I choose whether or not he's going to. Well, how did Paul say it in Romans chapter 6? We choose whom we're going to obey, whether it's righteousness or sin. That's why when he says put to death, you have to say, Lord, I'm going to obey your word, believing that you are going to make this heart change in me. Over the years that I've struggled with different types of sin, sin that would continually win, I finally had to stop trying to stop sinning and believe that God was going to give me victory. I still would say no to the sin, but I would do it the whole time saying, Lord, you've got to not only do this in this situation, I'm asking you to change my heart toward it. Now listen closely. Just because there have been times that he changed my heart toward certain sins at that moment didn't mean that my flesh didn't get up the next day. See, there are days that that sin has no interest because of the powerful work of God in my life. But I'm still in a body that's under the curse. And I have to daily let him give me that mind. Okay? Put to death, therefore, what's in earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Does that sound like another verse we've looked at tonight? What's happening? The new you, because of Christ living in you, is being renewed in the image of its creator. Does that remind anybody of Romans 8, 29? Those he foreknew, he predestined to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ or to renew you into the image of your creator. It's happening. And let me tell you that one of the benefits of knowing some of you for many years and hopefully that you've seen me for many years, is that you have been able to see this work in each of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? The longer we've gotten to know many of us, we've seen the change. We've seen the humility. We've seen not only the process of change when we got saved, but my friend Jim, I've known you were saved. I've seen the change in you after that. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
I hope you see the same in me. Because that's evidence of the Spirit of God doing His work in us. You're in a process. Now, I'm going to say something to you that I hope you can stick with me and understand. We're in a process. Don't beat yourself up, but you have a say in the speed of that process, according to the Scriptures. You can't make it go faster than God has planned. But you can delay it by resisting in disobedience. And you also, according to scriptures, can miss out on reward that God had for you, but your opportunity to receive it was lost because of disobedience in that moment. I, I, I love the Narnia stories and the movies. They've done a really good job, the ones that have been made so far, the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. And you remember that one situation where Lucy was supposed to follow Aslan, but everybody else didn't see him, and they, she listened to them instead of what she knew to be the right thing to do. And when she meets back up with him, she says, I probably should have come with you. And he says, what's done is done. In other words... We're not going to waste our time talking about what could have been. But there's an also that element of, well, let me read it to you from the scriptures. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. I want you to see that, that there is... Sorry. Go ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to go to verses 1 through 3, and then we'll get to uh, 11 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. By the way, is, who, is he talking to believers or, or non-believers? Hey, he calls them brothers. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? Paul says, I would have loved to give you more, but you weren't ready. You're supposed to be ready, but you weren't. Hebrews chapter 5, real quick. Keep a bookmark in 1 Corinthians 3 because we're coming back. Hebrews chapter 5. Listen to verses 11 through 14. Can't get any more clear than this. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, I'm oh, sorry, I actually don't think it's Paul. It's the Hebrew writer. I, don't, not, I have an idea who it is, but it doesn't matter. But I, don't, I believe it's not Paul. And about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solace food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The Hebrew writer says, look, at this point you should be teaching this stuff. So listen, you can't speed up God's process of conforming you into the image of his son, but you can delay it. How? Disobedience. Disobedience. Resistance to when the Spirit's prompting you. He's not going to force you. Oh, he's going to win. But sometimes he allows you to just kind of flounder till you get to that point where you say, Lord, help. <coughs> First Corinthians chapter three, verses 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, listen, he will suffer loss, though himself, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. At the end of the time that we've been on earth, and God determines how long that is for each of us, because his purposes for each of us are different, he will judge how much he's been allowed to do through us. And if what he's been allowed to do through us, well, if he's been allowed to do something through us, the Bible says it'll survive. The stuff we did on our own strength, we burn up. I don't know how this works out. I have some ideas from scripture. I'm not going to go down those roads tonight. I'm not going to chase those rabbits because there's something I want to do as we wrap up here tonight. But all that we know is this. The Bible says that somehow, someway, for eternity, some will be rewarded more than others, and some will experience loss for eternity. It may be tied to that day when he presents us to him. And there are those who are able, with many crowns and much, to bring before the Lord as an offering of what he's been allowed to do for his glory through them. And those others who go, here. Sweatpants. <laughs> sweatpants. That's true. That's true. Don't say sandals, just sweatpants. <laughs> Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. God has used this one recently to really get a hold of me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So you see that? It's not predetermined whether or not I'm an honorable use or dishonorable use like some people would try to tell you by misquoting from Romans 9. But we have a choice on whether or not we're going to be useful for honorable purposes or whether or not we will be not able to be used for honorable purposes. But if we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable and offer ourselves for what God wants to do through us that is honorable, if you will, we'll receive a reward. It's tied. Go ahead. Doesn't this change the idea of not grieving the Holy Spirit? in Ephesians 4 because you're going to you're you're grieving God because he wants so much for you yes instead of the other way where we hear it he's going to punish you don't grieve him you'll get him mad no it's the opposite it hurts him for you not to want to have your best it's a silly illustration but I remember a buddy of mine when I was in New Orleans you know him John Crow mm -hmm. back when their kids were little and the same age as our kids at that time they were driving home from from church and he wanted to buy his kids a frosty at Wendy's on the way home. But the son was so disobedient on the drive home, he had to pull out of the drive through line. And he told me later, it killed me. I wanted to buy him the Frosty, but I couldn't because of his behavior. That's exactly what you're talking about. No, the Spirit of God is wanting to bless. Think about it. Did Jesus say this? You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children? I'll be honest with you. If I could, I'd give my kids everything they want. 
I want to. My kids will tell you, I love to treat. AJ was supposed to have his first baseball game tonight. And while I'm at a board meeting, Becky texts and says, it's been rained out because the field's too wet. My first instinct was, I remember when I was playing baseball and it was the first game of the season and the crush that I felt when it was like the excitement of the first game and then now we can't play. So I quickly texted Becky while I was sitting in the board meeting. Sorry, Mark. And uh, I said, <laughs> tell him that if his, he doesn't have practice today either, I'm going to take him nine holes golfing. And as soon as he got home from school and I got home from the board meeting, we literally, and I'm not kidding you, called the golf course. We had to get there in 20 minutes. We jumped in, threw our socks and shoes on as we're going, and jumped onto the golf course. And me and my son went and walked nine holes so I could spend time with him and just bless him. Folks, my heart was, I want to give good gifts to my kids. Your father, your heavenly father is the same way. When you grieve the Holy Spirit, it's because he's saying, I want to, but you won't let me. You won't let me. We don't have time. But if you go back to Colossians 1, I'm going to read it to you. And we're going to come back next week and break this passage down. I'm going to just point out one thing real quick. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him, or him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We're going to break this down more next week. But listen to what Paul says. Not only is God in the process of conforming us into his image to present us to himself holy and mature and, and blameless. He's also using us in this process to help people become more into what Jesus wants them to become. And I'm going to just say this to you now. Stop thinking that's just the preachers and the teachers. We're going to show you next week. I'm going to lay it out for you. How the scripture says, brothers, warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. We all now, with this understanding, hopefully, that not only has God saved us, thank the Lord, but we're in the process of us making us into what he wants us to become for that day when he presents us to him. God wants to use each of us also, while he's doing it on us, to help each other in that process of becoming what God wants them to become. That does not mean we become little judges of everyone else's sin, but we become encouragers pointing people back to the Lord and his purposes and his work. Do not take where we're going to go tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, next week. Do not take it as I get to now judge whether or not I think you're living right. No. But understand that just as the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and encourages and woos so that Christ would be allowed to do in us what he wants to do, we are to all see ourselves, whether it's with one or two or 50 or 100, wherever God sends us, wherever we go, God wants us to be used in his purposes to help present everyone mature. Folks, I love what God's called me to do. I get to travel around and pretty much do this. Teach everyone so that I may be a part of God using me to present everyone mature in Christ. Yeah, even in New Hampshire. Even in New Hampshire, I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. 
I'm looking forward to it more now that you say that. God wants them to be mature in Christ too and warm. But at the same time, folks, I want you to get excited about where we're going next week. As I want you to start seeing how God can use you just even in someone's life to help them become more what Jesus wants them to become. Not because you're the judge or you get to tell them what their life's supposed to look like, but by pointing them to Jesus. We'll show you that next week. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you. Thank you for how you do your work in us. And thank you again for how this hour goes so fast. But Lord, you, you've given us a glimpse today that I don't think some of us have ever really looked at. I know for myself, as much as I've kind of known it, you've taken me to a depth in my study that I hadn't even ever really considered. Father, I pray that this is helpful to us to stop looking at this life. Father, may we understand that this is just a shaping and a preparation for what's to come. Lord, I know when I played sports and many of us here did athletics, we didn't like the preseason training. We just couldn't wait for the games to start because the preseason training was the lifting and the running and the workouts and the conditioning. But it had a purpose. What kept us going was the season to come. Lord, right now we're still in that conditioning time, that training time. May we be reminded of this on a daily basis. I know your spirit will do it. May we receive it. And may we stop living for this life and allow you to accomplish your purposes in this life for what is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.